Hello, everyone. Got your walking shoes on? Let's power walk the Bible. This is episode six, and we are covering four more books of the Old Testament, First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. If you want to do some reading before episode seven, read the next four books, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and Job. Let's pray together as we get started. Almighty God, make me an instrument of your salvation and sanctification for these precious people you've entrusted to my care through this podcast, that by my life and teaching, I may set forth your true and living word. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. As always, we talk about all of the scriptures we are covering today, but we also focus a bit on a particular passage or passages. Today, our passage is found in 1 Kings 17 and 18, the story of the great prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel. Listen as I read now from the New International Version. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, 
Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But... There was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four jars full of water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant, and he went and looked. There's nothing there, he said. Seven times, Elijah said, go back. The seventh time, the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, a heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. During the pandemic, 
We've heard a lot about the lockdowns of nursing homes and memory care centers. Many of us have friends and maybe family members who were in those settings, and it's no joke. But I did hear a story about a nursing home that I thought might give you a chuckle. It seems that an elderly woman was running up and down the hall of the nursing home in her nightgown. To everyone she came upon, she would flip up her gown and say, super sex, super sex. When she came upon an elderly gentleman in his wheelchair, she did the same thing, flipped up her gown and said, super sex, super sex. He was silent for a minute or two, and then finally he said, ah, it's a difficult choice, but I believe I'll take the soup. <laughs> in this world, we are constantly presented with choices, with decisions we have to make. Various researchers have determined that a typical adult can make as many as 35,000 decisions a day. In our last episode, as we studied the book of Judges, we saw that the Israelites had choices to follow Yahweh, their God who delivered them from slavery in Egypt, or to follow the pagan gods they encountered in the promised land. In many cases, they did not choose wisely. Today, we will see that becoming a nation under a king does not make these decisions any clearer for them. We're also going to see that our creator God, our holy God of grace and faith, our God who calls, is also a God of purpose. Ah, this should come as no surprise. We saw way back in Genesis that God created the universe and humans in particular to be in perfect relationship with him. And we saw in chapter three that once sin entered the world and destroyed this perfect relationship, God began working to save the world, to redeem his creation back to himself. Make no mistake, this is God's purpose and his only purpose, saving the world, you and me. We've seen God doing that through his chosen people, the Israelites, but we've also seen that this salvation project has taken several unexpected turns, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, for example, disobedience and more sin, adultery, murder, and yet God remains focused on his purpose. I decided to make this the theme of this episode because at one point it will seem that perhaps God has given up on saving the world through the Israelites. On the contrary, what we really see in this narrative of Israel as a united kingdom and then a divided kingdom is that God stays focused on his purpose in three ways. He is persistent, he is patient, and he keeps his promises. That's four Ps if you're keeping score. Purpose, persistence, patience, promises. Let's see how these play out. In the first 11 chapters of 1 Kings, we find the story of Solomon's reign as king of the United Kingdom of Israel. And since Bathsheba is Solomon's mother, we now see that she is the fourth woman in the lineage of Jesus, referenced in Matthew's gospel, interestingly, as Uriah's wife. 
This helps us understand even more the upside-down nature of the kingdom that Jesus will bring, a kingdom where the last are first. The last, deceivers like Jacob, prostitutes like Rahab, pretend prostitutes like Tamar, foreigners like Ruth, adulterers like David and Bathsheba, are the ancestors of Jesus the Christ. What does this tell us about who Jesus came to save? Not just the saints, but the sinners. Not the religious elite, but the ones, perhaps like you and me, who need to be forgiven much. In chapter 3, the Lord appears to King Solomon in a dream and offers to give him whatever he would like. Solomon replies, wisdom, which pleases God. Solomon subsequently becomes the wisest man in the land, but he also becomes extremely wealthy. Remember when his father David asked to build a temple for God? God said no on the temple, but promised that the Messiah, Jesus, would come from David's line. Now we see that Solomon will actually build the opulent temple. In fact, it is referred to throughout history as Solomon's temple. Solomon's reign is also a time of peace for Israel, allowing him to focus his energy on building projects and amassing great wealth. He also entertains many foreign dignitaries, including the Queen of Sheba. Unfortunately, Establishing alliances with foreign powers often means taking on foreign wives. In chapter 11, we learn that Solomon has more than 1,000 wives and concubines. As an aside, apparently Solomon rarely said, as the man in our story earlier, I'll just have the soup. But I digress. The problem is that most of these women are from foreign nations with whom God had warned about intermarrying, and Solomon allows them to bring their gods with them. He builds altars to these gods to keep those 1,000 women happy. As you can imagine, this does not make God happy. So he tells Solomon that when Solomon dies, he will divide the kingdom and leave only two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, with Solomon's son, Rehoboam. This kingdom, the southern kingdom, will be known as Judah. The remaining 10 tribes become the northern kingdom of Israel. As we move into the second chunk of 1 Kings in chapter 12, we begin the story of this divided kingdom. The two kingdoms are sometimes allies as they fight against neighboring countries and world empires, more often, they are at war with each other. Their relationship is always competitive, contentious, and distrustful. Some important things to remember about this period. Both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah go through many different kings over the next 350 to 400 years. The Bible describes these kings as either good following in the ways of King David, or evil following in the ways of Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom, Israel. In the southern kingdom of Judah, about a third of the kings are described as good. In the northern kingdom, there are no good kings. And yet, 
God continues forward with his purpose of salvation. He repeatedly protects both Israel and Judah from destruction by neighboring nations. Here we clearly see God's patience. His people turn away, but he stays focused on his mission, his purpose. Only a God of patience would put up with all that he has throughout Israel's life as a family, a nation, a kingdom. Remember his description of himself in Exodus 34, slow to anger. Here we see that played out on a grand scale. One other important note. The capital of the southern kingdom of Judah remains Jerusalem, the city of David. The northern kingdom of Israel establishes its own capital in the city of Samaria. This is the beginning of the bad feelings between Jerusalem and Samaria, which we see even in the New Testament about 800 years later. More on this in a moment. The books of 1 Kings and 2 Kings are written so that they alternate between the stories of the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. This gives you a good understanding of how the two kingdoms remain a part of each other's history. And throughout both books, we meet many interesting people and the names and places make your head swim. So today we are focusing on just a few of the key players. In chapter 16 of 1 Kings, we meet the most evil couple award winners of the Old Testament, King Ahab and his not-so-lovely bride Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel rule Israel, the northern kingdom, and worship the pagan god Baal. Among other evil acts, they have killed most of the Lord's prophets. The key word there is most. For who they did not kill is the focus of one of the greatest scenes in the Old Testament, which I read earlier. In chapter 18, we meet Elijah, the first great prophet of the Old Testament, and the name that comes to symbolize all the prophets. Elijah is a thorn in Ahab's side, and Jezebel detests him. They would like nothing better than to be rid of Elijah. God sends a famine on the land. No rain for three years until God tells Elijah it's time to show who is the one true God. So Elijah challenges all the prophets of the pagan god Baal, the god of Ahab and Jezebel, to a contest on Mount Carmel, a way to show who is the real God, Baal or Yahweh. This is a particularly clever plan to glorify God for two reasons. First, Baal is known as the God of fertility and the Lord of rain and dew. Second, Mount Carmel is where he lives. So basically, in setting this contest on Mount Carmel during a drought, Elijah has given Baal what we might call home court advantage. If there is anywhere that Baal should be available and anything that Baal should be able to do, it's bring rain. But as we read earlier, Baal is indisposed, gone to lunch, out of the office, perhaps taking a walk or a nap, because of course, Baal is a statue, not a god, 
certainly not the living God of the universe. His 450 prophets try to get his attention to light the fire under a sacrificial bull, but it doesn't happen. When it's Elijah's turn, he ups the ante by having a trough built around the altar, filling the trough with water and then pouring water all over the bull. Then he calls upon God to light the altar. And since God never does anything halfway, God's fire falls from the heavens and consumes not just the offering of the bull, but the wood, the stones, the dust, and even the water in the trench. Not long after, God sends the long-awaited rain right in Baal, the rain god's backyard. But the part I like best about this story is what Elijah said when he prayed to God to light the altar. In 1 Kings 18.37, we read Elijah's call to God. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Why does Elijah want God to light the altar? To glorify God, yes. To show that Baal is no God at all, yes. But mainly so that the people who had forsaken God for Baal would know that God has not forsaken them. I once heard someone speak on turning, or more specifically, returning. We typically use the word returning lightly, meaning we'll be back soon from our trip, our errands, our day at work. But here, Elijah doesn't use it lightly at all. He wants the Israelite Baal worshipers to know that God is aware that they have turned away from him. More importantly, God is at work returning them to him. Here we see God's persistence. When we turn away from him, he notices, and he immediately initiates the process of our return. It may take weeks, months, years, even a lifetime, but he does not give up. He is persistent. As the old hymn describes him, O oh, love that will not let me go. Our God of purpose is patient, and he is persistent. As we begin 2 Kings, we will see that it is divided into two sections, just like 1 Kings was. In 1 Kings, the first half was about Solomon being king over the United Kingdom. The second half was about the beginnings of the divided kingdom. In 2 Kings, we will see that the first half leads to the northern kingdom of Israel being conquered by the nation of Assyria. The second half of 2 Kings builds up to the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah to the nation of Babylon. At the beginning of 2 Kings, the great prophet Elijah is taken up into heaven in a whirlwind, and one of his disciples, Elisha, receives his spirit and becomes his successor. Both Elijah and Elisha have many similarities with Jesus. 
numerous disciples who travel with them, the healing of sick people, performing, performing many miracles similar to Jesus's miracles, and even raising the dead. The lineage of kings in both Judah and Israel continues with the leaders of both countries following in the ways of Jeroboam and Ahab, not King David. They are evil, not good. And yes, God is patient and God is persistent, but he is also a God of justice, which we will focus on more closely in a few weeks. For now, this means that God's patience with both Israel and Judah is running thin, but especially with Israel, the Northern Kingdom. Remember, they had no good kings and Ahab and Jezebel killed many of the Lord's prophets. So God begins to decrease the size of the Northern Kingdom. More and more tribes and their territories fall to conquering armies. Finally, God can no longer abide the sins of Israel. And in the mid eighth century BC, the capital Samaria is captured by the Assyrians. As is their practice, the Assyrians take most of the conquered people back to Assyria. To further prevent any possibility of uprising, the Assyrians also typically send people from other countries they had conquered into a newly conquered area to inhabit it. This is what happens in Samaria, which leads to intermarriage with the few Israelites left there, resulting in a hybrid religion based on Judaism, but laced with paganism. The history between Israel and Judah, combined with this impure worship of Yahweh, forms the foundation of the relationship between Jews and Samaritans in Jesus's day. Keep this in mind for our discussion of Jesus's life and ministry when we get to the New Testament. After the fall of Israel, the action shifts in the last half of 2 Kings to just Judah in the south. We meet one of the good kings, King Hezekiah. We also meet the great prophet Isaiah in Hezekiah's story, as the king calls upon him for spiritual guidance. Hezekiah's grandson, Josiah, also rules in Hezekiah's ways. Josiah's sons, however, become puppet kings of Babylon, the current world power that has conquered the Assyrians. Babylon's king, Nebuchadnezzar, takes over more and more of Judah, deporting the Jewish scholars, leaders, and artisans to Babylon as he goes. This time is often called the Great Deportation and occurred several years before Jerusalem finally fell. We'll talk about it again when we get to the prophets Daniel and Ezekiel. In chapter 25, we read that after a long and merciless siege, Jerusalem falls to Nebuchadnezzar. Most biblical historians date this event to mid-6th century BC, 150 to 200 years after the fall of the Northern Kingdom. Solomon's temple is destroyed and the remaining military, craftsmen, and artisans are exiled to Babylon. Only the poorest people are left in Judah, and they ultimately flee to Egypt. 
This is the point where a person might think that our God of purpose has lost his focus. His purpose is to save the world through these disobedient people, the Israelites, and yet he has allowed them to be conquered and taken into exile. They no longer occupy the promised land that was promised to their forefather, Abraham. How can this all lead to saving the world? The books of First and Second Chronicles will give us just a hint. So let's talk about these two special books. Yes, special. Why? Well, if you did your reading, you probably thought, you've got to be kidding me. First, I wade through pages and pages of family trees, like Ancestry.com on steroids, and then it tells me the same story I just read in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. What gives? Well, what gives is that these books are the same story, with genealogies all the way back to Adam, actually, retold from a new viewpoint. But we don't get that viewpoint until the very end. Skip with me to the last verse, where we read in 2 Chronicles 36, 23. This is what Persia's King Cyrus says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the earth's kingdoms and has instructed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Whoever among you belong to God's people, let them go up and may the Lord their God be with them. We didn't find this bit of information at the end of 2 Kings, did we? There, the end was, well, the end. The northern kingdom had fallen to Assyria. We never heard of them again. The southern kingdom held on a little bit longer, but ultimately fell to Babylon and everyone was killed or sent into exile. Jerusalem was sacked and the temple where God lived was destroyed. But here we read that after 70 years of exile, the king of Persia, the new world power who conquered Babylon, says that the exiles can go back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And there is what makes the two books of Chronicles special. These books are written from the perspective of a conquered, exiled people. They are not the arrogant people of a divided kingdom who worshipped whom they pleased, with kings that led them away from, not toward their God. They are a people who have suffered defeat at the hands of a ruthless enemy. They have seen their world destroyed, and they have wondered if they would ever return to their beloved Jerusalem. These people have been humbled. In 2 Chronicles 7.14, we read God's words, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Solomon spoke these words at the dedication of the temple he built during his reign. Long before the divided kingdom, the sieges by the Assyrians and the Babylons, Babylonians, and the 70 years of exile. And yet, it took all those things for Israel to be able to humble themselves so that God could heal their land and live with them 
once again. But Chronicles does one more important thing. All those genealogies at the beginning, telling us the lineages of each of the tribes, there's a reason for that. A very important reason. It was imperative that the records show that the tribes remained intact throughout the exile. They didn't lose their tribal identity. You could still trace each tribe's line, especially one tribe's line, the tribe of Judah, David's family tree. The writer of Chronicles wants to be sure there is no doubt that David's family line is still alive and pure. Why? Because, as we know from last week's lesson, from David's line will come the Messiah, the one who will fulfill God's purpose. The promise of redemption for Israel, the promise of salvation for the world, the promise of a new covenant, the promise of Jesus. And so the two volumes of Kings and the two volumes of Chronicles tell us of a God of purpose, a God who is patient with his disobedient wandering children, a God who is persistent in returning them to him, a God who keeps his promise of salvation. Today, we are still a people and a land that need healing. We need humbling. We need to be reminded that the God we pray to, the God we worship each Sunday, the God who is returning our hearts to him, is still focused on his purpose. And like Israel at the time of the exile, it may seem that he has abandoned that mission. We wonder, like the Israelites, how will this world be healed? How can God live with us again? That's when we remember that our God is patient. He is persistent. And he keeps his promises. And that my brothers and sisters, is very good news. This is God's story for your life.